At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. The show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023 and the end of week 52 of the Russia-Ukraine war. It's been 3,283 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 364 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that the infighting between private military company or PMC Wagner Group's leader Yevgeny Prigozhin and the Russian Ministry of Defense is fomenting unrest on and off the battlefield. There is a very small but notable chance that the ongoing provocations could spark Russian-on-Russian violence. Second, we maintain that the Russian Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, is actively working to eliminate the influence of PMC Wagner Group and Yevgeny Prigozhin, both on and off the battlefield. Third, due to reported equipment, communications, and ammunition shortages, We have very low confidence that Russian forces will launch a larger, concentrated effort in one or more directions on or before February 24th. Fourth, we maintain that there is an extremely high risk of punitive missile and drone strikes on civilians and civilian infrastructure from February 23rd to 24th, with highly favorable weather conditions expected. Fifth, we maintain that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Sixth, we maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Seventh, we maintain that the Russian Federation's inventory of caliber cruise missiles is critically low based on the continued decline of launches from the Black Sea Fleet. And finally, we assess that there is no possibility of Ukraine invading Transnistria without provocation. Let's get some regional updates, starting in Kharkiv. In the Dvorichna operational area, 
The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Russian attacks on Khyanikivka and Masyutivka were repulsed. The Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, claimed their forces attacked Sinkivka. There continues to be a deficit of intelligence in this region. Some assessment, though. The current fighting east of Dvorichna is likely spoiling attacks and not indicative of larger offensive operations by Russian forces. Moving on to the Donbass region in Luhansk. In the Svatova operational direction, Russian forces attacked Novoselivsk and were unsuccessful. In the Kremina operational area, Russian troops continued their attacks west of Ploshanka, also without success. There were no noteworthy reports of fighting south of the settlement along the P-7 highway to Chervonopopivka for the second day in a row. Russian forces renewed efforts to push back Ukrainian forces west of Kremina. There hasn't been recent social intelligence to show if the line of conflict has moved further east in the last three to five days. Luhansk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Serhii Khaidai said that the, quote, most difficult fighting was around Kremina, with Ukrainian forces holding defensive lines and able to go on the offensive, quote, in some areas. Mercenary mill blogger Wargonzo confirmed Khaidai's assessment, reporting that Russian forces found some success advancing near Kuzmina, while Ukrainian forces were able to push Russian troops back from the Siversky-Donetsk floodplain west of Shiplivka. Sentinel-2L2A satellite imagery from February 17th showed the fields between Yampolivka and Kremina were pocked with artillery craters from weeks of fighting. In the Lysychansk operational area, Russian forces continued their attacks on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, without success. In northeast Donetsk, in the Siversk operational area, the GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions in Spirna were attacked by Russian aviation. Wargonzo reported that Russian troops attempted to advance on Vesele from Yampolivka, but were unsuccessful. In the Solidar operational area, Russian forces, possibly supported by PMC Wagner, continued attempts to capture Vasyukivka and made a renewed push toward Rozolivka. There was no change to the line of conflict. In the Bakhmut operational area, Ukrainian forces were able to stabilize new defensive lines south of Paraskovyevka and prevented PMC Wagner from advancing on Yehidne. Heavy fighting was reported on the northern and eastern edges of Berkhivka. Fighting continued on the eastern edges of Bakhmut. Geolocated videos indicated there were no changes to the line of conflict, and the heaviest fighting is near school number four and along Fedora Maximenka Street. Ukrainian officials reported the area was experiencing intense shelling, followed by repeated attacks of lightly armored squad-sized Russian units until nightfall. In the Kosyantanivka operational direction, Russian troops supported by PMC Wagner are trying to advance to the airplane monument in southwestern Bakhmut, with Ukrainian forces reportedly holding defensive lines south of Ivanivske. Ukrainian source Deep State said the defensive lines were stabilizing, while mercenary mill blogger Rybar reported that Ukrainian forces remained on the offensive. In southwest Donetsk, 
In the Torensk, New York operational area, our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal Kremlin pariah and failed Mobik Igor Strelkov-Girkin, claimed Russian positions in Novoselivka were under intense artillery fire by Ukrainian forces. In the Avdiivka operational area, Russian troops continued their attacks on the western edge of Novobakhmutivka without success. A geolocated video confirmed that the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, made marginal gains west of Novoselivka Druha and crossed the H-20 highway. The video is not suitable for work, and some may find it disturbing. As with most of the photos and videos we reference, we do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. We adjusted the map to show that Russian troops have established positions at the base of the Krasnohorivka Plateau. We also adjusted the map and moved Russian troops out of Vesele, the one north of Avdiivka, after several Russian reports of a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive. The GSAFU reported the counterattack as successfully defending, quote, in the area of Vasilivka. The 1st Army Corps attempted to advance west out of Vodyana to flank Pervomaiske, but were unable to advance due to a lack of artillery and armored vehicle support. DNR forces also continued attempts to advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske and continued to be unsuccessful. In the Marinka operational area, fighting continued in the city's center along Druzhby Avenue with no change in the situation. Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor Pavlo Kirilenko reported the city was heavily shelled during the day. In the Wukhirar operational area, Ukrainian forces cleared the Mikilska dachas and secured the northern industrial areas of Pavlivka after successful counteroffensives. Rybar reported that Russian forces tried to attack Wulhidar, but the advance became, quote, bogged down and failed. Russian social media and news channels in occupied Donetsk were flooded with reports of air defense activity in Makievka, Khartsik, Debaltseve, Iluvaisk, Mariupol, and Donetsk. Pictures from Debaltseve showed a destroyed building with damage consistent with a rocket attack by HIMARS. Russian social media users claimed the attacks were made by ground-launch small-diameter bombs, or GLSDB, fired by a HIMARS launcher. There is no evidence at this time to support that claim. There were 11 explosions reported in Mariupol, with claims that the Central and Kalimus districts were struck, knocking out power to the East Bank district. Mariupol would be in HIMARS range if a strike were launched from Bokhoyavlenka, north of Wuhedar. Insurgents reported troop movements out of Mariupol restarted, with equipment and personnel moving toward Berdyansk. In Zaporizhia, there was no update on the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, nor the contingent of International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, inspectors. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OCS, reported five Black Sea fleet vessels on patrol with no missile carriers. The deployment of five ships may have been related to the sinking of a cargo ship off the coast of Novorossiysk. The vessel broke up in stormy seas and near hurricane force winds. Russian officials reported rescuing one crew member. 
Transnistria reported that Ukrainian forces were clearing the roadway near the Platonovo checkpoint on the Kivokhrad Highway and staging troops. Rumors were circulating that Ukraine planned to launch an offensive to sweep the Russian garrison out of the breakaway republic and capture the Kobana ammunition depot. Some assessment here? No. That's it. That's, that's, that's the whole assessment. In western and central Ukraine, in Kherson, Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery strikes across the Dnipro River. In the city of Kherson, residential and commercial areas were shelled by dozens of grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. The photos are graphic, and some may find them disturbing despite being blurred. The attack killed five and wounded 21, including 16 who are now hospitalized. After the attack, Kherson Oblast leaders said they would accelerate the deployment of reinforced bus shelters starting next week and claimed the city was moving too slowly. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin has instructed the Ministry of Defense and Rosatom, the national nuclear regulator, to ensure Russia is ready to perform nuclear tests, saying during his speech on Tuesday, quote, It is known for sure that the USA is considering the possibility of testing its nuclear weapons, end quote. Putin alleged that America's nuclear arsenal was reaching its expiration date, forcing new testing. Some assessment here. For obvious reasons, we don't know the condition of the United States' nuclear arsenal. Before 2022, the United States spent over $60 billion annually on maintaining its nuclear weapons. That's equivalent to the entire Russian defense budget. There is one other problem. The United States Stockpile Stewardship and Management Plan by the National Nuclear Security Administration is public information. It includes detailed information on where your $65 billion is going to keep the current stockpile in service and maintained. After levying the accusation, Putin announced that Russia was suspending its participation in the START Treaty with the United States. The most recent treaty was signed in 2010 and was extended in February 2021. START limits the number of launch systems for each nation to 700, and operational warheads to 1,550. Each heavy bomber counts as one delivery system for aircraft, and each silo for ballistic submarines. After Putin's speech, the Russian Foreign Ministry clarified that they intend to continue to follow START guidelines despite suspending the treaty. Quote, In order to maintain a sufficient degree of predictability and stability in the missile and nuclear sphere, Russia intends to adhere to a responsible approach and will continue to strictly adhere to the quantitative limitations on New START. End quote. On the subject of Putin's speech, several Russian websites streaming Putin's national address were blocked due to a distributed denial of service or DDoS attack. The All Russian State Television and Radio Broadcasting Company, or VGTRK, and Smotrim, which doesn't at all sound like a weight loss drug, were knocked offline, 
and international audiences reported problems accessing the RT feed. The state-run RIA Novosti news agency verified that a DDoS attack caused the outages. Our subscribers have access to our analysis of Putin's speech. You can read what we concluded on our Patreon. Or see the extremely abridged version on Twitter. Ukraine released a photo of a Sikorsky S-70I, a near-military upgraded version of the UH-60 Blackhawk helicopter, in the service of the Defense Intelligence Directorate of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, or GUR. Ukraine gave it a lovely gloss black livery. Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney announced during a joint press conference in Kyiv that her country will provide the previously announced SAMP-T air defense system and the Skyguard Aspide system, which is the previous generation NASMs that uses more cost-efficient Sparrow missiles. A year of talking about providing Ukraine with Western military aircraft continued in the United Kingdom. Former British Prime Minister Liz Truss, speaking to Parliament as an MP, said, quote, We need to do everything we can as soon as possible. This also applies to fighters. Let's work with our allies to enable them to use the F-16 or they will not be able to win. End quote. Slightly more former Prime Minister Boris Johnson agreed with Truss, saying, quote, We need to get down to business and give them planes. End quote. United States Congressperson Michael McCall, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, was in Kyiv for ongoing meetings with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky about military aid. According to the congressman, the Biden administration and the National Security Council were still split over, quote, how fast and what weapons, end quote, to send to Ukraine. He told reporters in central Kyiv, quote, but I'm seeing increasing momentum towards getting the artillery and the planes in. And in any event, we can start training the pilots right now so they're ready, end quote. Bloomberg reported that the U.S. provided JDAM aerial bombs, provided in a December 21st aid package, are modified to increase flight range to 72 kilometers when dropped from a height of 14 kilometers. Some assessment? With the Ukrainian airspace in a state of air parity, it is really unlikely that Ukrainian military aircraft would risk flying that high to extend the glide path of the bomb. Just saying. Speaking of bombs, let's talk about the Russian military and mobilization. Wagner released a video of an outhouse with pictures of Gerasimov and Shoigu at the perfect height for a little, well, target practice, as it were. Prigozhin released another audio recording, accusing the Russian Ministry of Defense of treason and claiming that his mercenaries have been cut off from all military equipment, including spades used to dig trenches. Some on social media mocked his latest appeal for military support, wondering why the billionaire can't afford to buy shovels for his mercenaries based on the funding PMC Wagner received in 2022. The Russian MOD responded to Prigozhin's accusation, saying Prigozhin was trying to create a rift between different Russian units. In a statement, the ministry said, quote, None of the statements made, allegedly, on behalf of assault units about the lack of ammunition correspond to reality. Between the 18th and 20th of February alone, 
Volunteers from assault units were given 1,660 rockets for multiple launch rocket systems, 10,171 shells for large caliber artillery and mortar bombs, 980 projectiles for tanks. Prigozhin released a furious response in another audio statement, saying that Wagner fighters have not received 80% of the promised ammunition. He added that there were no, quote, volunteers on the Bakhmut front, only Wagner Group fighters. Prigozhin said, quote, If you want to give us ammunition, give it to us. Don't go telling lies about it to the Russian people in the media. In contrast to the Russian Defense Ministry and its claims, I'm prepared to submit all relevant documents, including the requests for ammunition submitted and the reports concerning the amount received to a military prosecutor's office or counterintelligence. Up to you. End quote. Some assessment. Currently, neither the Kremlin nor PMC Wagner has an exit ramp in this incredibly public dispute. There are numerous theories, ranging from Prigozhin is attempting to deflect his inability to capture Bakhmut, to the Kremlin wanting PMC Wagner and Prigozhin destroyed. There is a significant danger in angering ultranationalist military personnel and convincing them that they're being metaphorically stabbed in the back. Earlier in the year, the fight between the Kremlin and Prigozhin was a useful distraction for President Putin. In our assessment, that is no longer the case. If the two powers can't make peace in a way that restores PMC Wagner's combat power, there is a significant risk that this could spill over into domestic terrorism within Russia or unit against unit fighting for resources. Notably absent from Putin's speech, Prigozhin, obviously, and Colonel General Ramzan Kadyrov. Prigozhin said he was not invited, and Kadyrov joined the PMC Wagner leader in attacking Russian Colonel General Lapin in September. Kadyrov accused Lapin of being a, quote, coward, falsely claiming that Lapin never commanded from the front. Like Prigozhin, he celebrated the appointment of the general of the army Sergei Sorovikin, a Prigozhin ally, as Lapin's replacement. However, Sorovikin was demoted on January 11th. We had assessed in late September that Kadyrov was acting opportunistically, with rampant rumors he was positioning himself as the next Russian Minister of Defense. The day after the Russian puppet leader of Crimea, Sergei Aksyonov, expressed his support for Yevgeny Prigozhin, TV ads for recruitment appeared on Crim24 TV channels in the occupied territories. Prigozhin had complained that many Russian TV networks were now refusing to run his ads. Quick sidebar, maybe he could reallocate some of that ad spending into buying shovels. Just putting that out there. United States Customs and Border Protection reported 22,000 Russians tried to enter the United States illegally from Mexico, attempting to escape mobilization. As a benchmark, In 2020, 467 Russians tried to cross the border illegally. The number of attempts to enter the United States tripled in September 2022, the very same month mobilization was announced. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. 
There is no graphic detail in today's incredibly brief report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. The United Nations released updated figures for confirmed civilian casualties in Ukraine through mid-February, 8,006 killed and 13,287 wounded. The UN believes the actual figure is much higher. This figure does not include areas that are currently occupied or where fighting is ongoing. In geopolitical news, U.S. President Joe Biden spoke at the Royal Castle in Warsaw, Poland. The speech was a partial rebuttal to President Putin's earlier on Tuesday. Biden said, quote, One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I have just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report, Kyiv stands strong. When President Putin ordered his tanks to roll into Ukraine, he thought we would roll over. He was wrong. He thought NATO would fracture and divide. Instead, NATO is more united and more unified than ever. Than ever before. He thought autocrats like himself were tough and leaders of democracies were soft. And then he met the iron will of America and the nations everywhere that refused to accept a world governed by fear and force. He found himself at war with a nation led by a man whose courage would be forged in fire and steel, President Zelensky. And I'll repeat tonight what I said last year in this same place. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never be able to erase the people's love of liberty. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free, and Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the war with a word. It's simple. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine, it would end the war. If Ukraine stopped defending itself against Russia, it would be the end of Ukraine. That's why, together, we're making sure Ukraine can defend itself. End quote. Meanwhile, in the United Arab Emirates, Russia was selling weapons at the biennial UAE arms fair on Monday, February 20th. Despite Western sanctions, Russia was selling weapons ranging from the classic AK-47 Kalashnikov to missile systems. The Russian Minister of Trade and Industry, Denis Monturov, was among the attendees despite being under U.S. and U.K. sanctions. After Putin's speech, Russia's foreign ministry summoned U.S. Ambassador Lynn Tracy to complain about growing support for Ukraine and the Seymour Hirsch investigation of sabotage on Nord Streams 1 and 2. The ministry argued that the U.S. was, quote, pumping Ukraine with weapons, end quote, and sharing information about military targets, which, quote, proves the falsehood of the American side's claims that the United States is not a party to the conflict, end quote. On the same day, the United Nations released its preliminary findings on the ongoing investigation of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 explosions and said it could not confirm or verify allegations of sabotage. The UN asked all parties to be reasonable and wait for the results of multiple ongoing national investigations. Quick sidebar. The investigative report by Hirsch has been discredited due to numerous factual errors and timeline impossibilities in his article. 
While delivering a keynote address at the opening of the Lanting Forum, Ching Gong, the Chinese foreign minister, declared, quote, China is deeply worried about the continuous escalation of the conflict and the possibility of the situation spiraling out of control. We urge relevant countries to immediately stop fueling the fire, blaming China, and hyping up the rhetoric, today Ukraine, tomorrow Taiwan, end quote. Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to announce his outline for a ceasefire and peace plan between Russia and Ukraine on February 24th. Kyiv officials have hinted they've seen part of the plan and have privately expressed cautious optimism. The head of foreign affairs of Slovakia, Rastislav Kacer, sent Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban, a lengthy statement declaring that military aid to Ukraine is morally correct since the Russians invaded the country and are killing Ukrainians. Orban, who has blocked EU sanctions, financial aid to Ukraine and oil and gas trade restrictions, and whose nation has refused to issue passes for Ukrainian refugees, has frustrated his neighbors with what is perceived as a pro-Kremlin position. Kacher ended their letter stating, quote, For Putin's collaborators, and especially for ours in the Carpathian Basin and Highlands, for all those who want peace at the cost of destroying Ukraine, I have only one message. Go to hell. End quote. The Russian embassy in the Netherlands announced restrictions on providing consular services after Dutch authorities decided to expel some diplomatic mission employees on suspicion of espionage. In a statement, the Russian diplomatic mission said, quote, we regret the temporary inconvenience caused by the unfriendly actions of the Dutch authorities. End quote. Dutch officials announced the restrictions after accusing Moscow's diplomatic service of repeatedly trying to employ spies and intelligence officers. In response, the Consulate General of the Netherlands office in St. Petersburg was closed on February 20th. The Dutch embassy in Moscow remains open. The Russian embassy in The Hague notes, quote, Due to the decision of the Dutch authorities to reduce the staff of the Russian embassy in The Hague, starting from 20th February 2023, visitors will not be accepted according to previously issued records, except for issuing passports. End quote. In economic news, the day after non-visa travel between Russia and China was re-established for groups of 5 to 50 people for up to 15 days, China threw a wrench into Russian tourism. Moscow was informed that over 650 commercial aircraft flying for Russian airlines are banned from landing in China because they're not certified by the Bermuda Registry or are on a restricted list by the United States Department of Defense. The aircraft are mostly from Boeing and Airbus and are considered stolen after Russian airlines refused to continue lease payments in March 2022. The ruble had an exchange rate of 75 for one U.S. dollar, but continues its slow drift to losing value due to continued demand destruction. Although President Putin claimed that demand from the ruble doubled through 2022 in his February 21st speech, he ignored that Moscow requires payments for goods and services to be made exclusively in rubles, artificially propping up demand. West Texas Intermediate crude drifted downward to $76 a barrel, while Brent held steady at $83.
Russian Urals crude was steady at an official price of $54 a barrel. United States wholesale Arbob gasoline also drifted downward, with spot market pricing at $2.41 a gallon or $0.63 cents a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures shook off their volatility from the start of the year and are trading in a narrow range, with March and April contracts at €50 Euros per megawatt hour. The cost of natural gas is well below 2022 levels due to an almost historically warm winter, conservation measures, and European nations establishing new trade partners faster than expected. Chicago SRW wheat futures dropped significantly, falling to $7.55 a bushel for May 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.